0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to a Psalms season of Sunday School, a weekly Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host and Pillar editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by our, our really, our singing songbook, Salty, our singing songbook himself, uh, our, our scripture teacher, Salty Dr. With Salty with a P, our scripture teacher, Dr. Scott Powell, for this, our episode on the second section of the Psalter.
1: <laughs> That's a lot of alliteration in that entire introduction. I know, and I don't even, it it's just ceased.
0: happening, you know? It wasn't even like I wanted it to happen. It's just happening.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it lends itself to it. There's, there's actually something uh, appropriate to the Psalms about the sheer amount of alliteration, because it's so, somewhat poetic, which the Psalms are.
0: That's true. That's so a way to, good point. Way to live it out. Way to hey, embody it. You know how I do.
1: <laughs> you do like that.
0: So we are, as I said, this is uh, this, in this episode, we are going to talk about Book 2 of the Psalter. And to start things off, here's The Pillars, Ed Condon, with Psalms 42 and 43.
2: As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have become my food, day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival? Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunted me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God.
1: So like you said in the intro, we're talking about what is called book two this week. Um, which the, the psalms organize themselves, the way that they show up, the, the way that we receive them as a church is that they're divided into five books. And we talked a little bit last week about how those five books um, were really intentional. So the psalms as we have them are a bunch of poems and songs written over the course of salvation history. There's a ton of them ascribed to David, I think right. 73, and then others to you know choir leaders or uh, song masters, song masters. Song people in, in David's court. Conductors. Song Conductors. Yeah. You tell me, buddy. I, I'm going to call him a, a, a song master. Um, Solomon actually has some. Moses mm-hmm. has some ascribed. So, over the course of salvation history, but they are put together, they're assembled in a very purposeful way after the exile. And so, one of the ways I think uh, we ought to look at the Psalms is, um, and I was reflecting on this this morning, a literary temple. They're oh, a literary wow. temple. Yeah. Just as the in the story of creation, we have creation itself. The Eden the, the Garden of Eden is a creation is a temple rather in space and time. Yeah. And so in this way the Psalms are actually a temple in literary form. And they're they're given to us this way. Again, they're written over the course of salvation history, but they're put together as a temple because they're actually being given to Israel in a time when they have lost the temple.
0: And Scott, we can think of a temple as a place, I mean, especially if we've been taking your class, so to speak, if we've been listening to previous seasons of Sunday School, we can think of a, a temple as a place where the presence of God dwells. And for me, that feels like a great analogy to scripture because we know that God is alive and present in His Word, in Scripture. Yeah. I wonder, would Israelites of the time of the sort of compilation of the Psalms or Israelites after the exile, would they have thought about Scripture being alive and imbued with the presence of God in the same way that we would think about it as Christians?
1: I don't know the answer to that question simply because Scripture didn't look to them like it looks to us. Mm-hmm. Um, scripture was not fully compiled as a canon by that point. And right. so by the time we're we're talking about, there are certain obviously codified texts. There, there, The Pentateuch is there. The Torah is there. I'm sure many books are the prophecies. But there's also oral traditions. A lot of the right. Psalms, I don't even know if they'd been taken to writing prior to this, but they've been being sung. So the reason that the, I like the temple analogy is because, like you said, the, the temple is the meeting place where, where we meet with—well, you said it's where the presence of God is. Which is true. And I if did that's indeed. if that's the case, that means that the temple for us is actually the meeting place between God and humanity. And mm-hmm. and that's in every religion. It's not just Judaism and Christianity. Every religion had some version of a temple where we would meet with the divine. Yeah. But The other thing about a temple is that it's more than just a meeting place. It's not like a a waiting room in a doctor's office. It's filled with sounds and smells and art and pictures and colors. It's a very visceral place, which is why our Catholic churches traditionally are meant to mirror the temple of old, where you know we're we're reminded of plants and trees and fruit and colors and signs and sounds and smells and, and waters and everything else. So the psalms are appropriate to talk about that way because they're incredibly colorful. They're incredibly emotional. They're incredibly visceral. They bring in all of the senses. And one of the other things I was uh, I was kind of wrestling with this morning as I was thinking about uh, today's episode, and I got a little frustrated um, with last week. And I don't know if there's anything wrong with last week's episode. No, but it was, I was great. I mean, but it... I was thinking about the nature of the psalms. And here's here's one of the problems. So the psalms are, are fundamentally poetry and yeah. song. And throughout the course of the Bible, thirty percent, so about a third of the Bible is poetry. Yeah, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I don't know if you you studied literature or poetry, you know, back in school, but you know you can read textbooks, usually dry, kind of boring, about the mechanics and the technical pieces of poetry, which is fine, and I think that's that's good. But nothing actually substitutes just reading the poetry. You know right. what I mean? So so we can talk a lot about these things, and I want to do that, and I kind of want to prime the pump, but I hope it's for the purpose of our listeners going back and actually just reading the Psalms.
2: Sure.
0: Because there's
1: only so much you can say about something without then going into it. Sure. And I think part of the reason the Psalms are difficult for us, or I guess I could just speak to myself, that they're difficult for me, but I think as a culture they're difficult for us, is that the Psalms depend, poetry in general, right, depends on what we call imagination. And I think imagination, I'm going to get a little bit soapboxy for a second. I think imagination is something that we are greatly lacking in our culture right now. And I can sound like an old man, a crusty old man who's blaming TV and and the media and social media and the internet, which is probably the case. But what I mean by that is that – so take it out of the Psalms for a second. Go to Revelation. Remember in Revelation, there is the description of a dragon. When I say the word dragon – Right. I think for you, probably for, I assume for our listeners, there's a little search engine going on in our brains that's pulling up ready made images of dragons, right? Yeah. And like maybe a little,
0: like a little, it's like a little Rolodex of dragon pictures <laughs> that you can just sort of, thumb yeah. Through, it right? might
1: be Puff the Magic Dragon. It might be from Harry Potter. Like, but what, here's the thing. If we didn't have any of those pictures, if I'd never seen a movie with a dragon, if I'd never read a book that had a dragon in it, what my brain would conjure when I heard the word dragon or heard a description of a dragon is far more terrifying than anything I would have ever see, seen a picture of right? Or, or saw in a movie. And I think because we have, we are so formed by images, computer images, movie images, TV, whatever, it's deadened our imagination, mm. and it's deadened this little ability that God built into us to create pictures and images and whole worlds that are wondrous and terrifying and everything else. Right. And so the poetry of the Bible doesn't always work on us as well as it should, uh. because we don't allow our imaginations to to experience the richness of these things. Does that make sense? Yeah, it so does. Absolutely. Our, no, that makes sense to me. Yeah. But the Psalms that depend on, the psalmists depend on this, because... You know, there's a reason the Psalms look the way they do. They're in a context of liturgy, but for, they're for the purpose of creating a whole life for us. They're, they're, liturgy isn't meant to just, again, remain in a sanctuary or in a temple or in a synagogue. It's meant to inform everything else in our lives. And so these images and these pictures and these colors and these emotions are meant to carry with us in, a, in the same way that we get a song stuck in our head. You can't get it out, right? These are supposed to be the, the ear bugs. Isn't that the term? Ear yeah. bugs that they get kind of stuck in our head as we go. Oh, Earworms. We, we Earworms. That's that's. I knew that didn't sound right. Um, because you know poetry is easier to remember than prose. Sure. Songs are. You know, it's easier to remember the, the Star Spangled Banner than the prologue. The, well, and the we talked about, about that about the yeah, about right.
0: the value of having about the gift of sort of if you pray the liturgy of the hours or if you just read the psalms regularly yeah. and recite them. The gift of sort of having them. That's right. At your at your sort of call as a way even of expressing. Uh, a, a, a religious sentiment or something like
1: that. That's absolutely right. right. Psalm 119 mm-hmm. itself says that if a young man wants to avoid sin, what should he do? He should actually memorize the scriptures right. yeah. and mm-hmm. actually take it into his heart.
0: Happy is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. Day well, and night. Psalm 2. Yeah. Right. No, I know. I was just no, trying, I know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it's right. Who right. haggahs the law of the Lord. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's when the psalmist says, for example – um, the dogs surrounded me, one of the suffering servant songs, right? Uh-huh. He could have said, Mean people didn't like me. Right. But he doesn't say that. He says, yeah. The dogs are surrounding me because that's supposed to evoke something in me. He says, My tongue cleaves to my mouth. Or on Good and Friday, just, we pray, like
0: the waters have come up to my neck. Yeah, exactly right. right. Mm-hmm.
1: Which is, that should freak you out. Yeah. But again, I think our imaginations have kind of become deadened because mm-hmm. we're inundated with imagery and everything like that. Sure. That we lose some of it. So I, I just want to invite us um, to return to that, to let some of the emotion and the color and the, the full-bodiedness of the Psalms kind of overtake us. Yeah. So again, we can talk all day about the Psalms, but nothing is ever going to be a substitute for actually reading them. So I hope if nothing else, this episode encourages you to go back to it. So one of the things we talked about last week is that we talked about Psalm 2, which you sort of alluded to which was believed to be a coronation hymn for the enthronement of the Davidic king. And that coronation hymn emphasized really two major points that I'm going to come back to this week. Number one, the king's authority, the authority of the king of Israel throughout, this is an Old Testament principle that we cannot lose. The authority of the king comes from God. It is God alone who establishes the king on his holy hill. It says that in chapter two, verse six. Um, We learn that it is God who enthrones the king. It is a divine act that the king is the king. So this is the main theme, I think, in the uh, theology of the kingdom in not only book one, but book two of the Psalms. And in a certain sense, book one and book two kind of go together hand in hand, Um, but they do it in a really particular way that I want to get to. So the Davidic kingdom we talked about is the earthly manifestation. It's kind of a sacrament of god's kingdom god's rule over the earth is concretely seen in the davidic kingdom of israel yeah Mm -hmm. so is god king of all of the earth yeah but in
0: a particular way in,
1: uh, of Israel. Yeah, in a concrete yeah. way, in a yeah. tangible way. So again, it's, it's kind of very sacramental. Um, so it's the earthly reality which makes God's sovereignty, which makes his kingship present to us in, in a sacramental way. So this, is, I, this idea, I think, is really important for book two of the Psalms. It's also really important for us, partially, not the least of which, uh, is that in the if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, right? Do you remember the first public words out of the mouth of Jesus? So after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness, which is sort of his interior life manifest, the first public thing he says is "repent." In other words, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. And that is a a verse actually just before it, John the Baptist says the exact same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first words ringing in in our ears out of their mouths is about the kingdom. And I, I think this is a concept and a principle that has been lost on a lot of Christianity for a long time, especially in our part of the world, because I think for most, many Christians, right, when they hear the term the kingdom of heaven, I think most Folks, either think of a nice, warm, fuzzy place in my heart right, or, you know, the the invisible bond that mm-hmm. unites us all as believers, which neither of those are untrue. They're true. Or just merely the place where I go when I die. Right. The kingdom of heaven. Right. So repent. Everybody turn around because you're all about to die, mm-hmm. which I don't think is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I've come to make the kingdom that existed before me, that existed in the time of David, present again. Yeah. And it is at hand. It's literally within reach. You can reach out and touch it, which suggests something tangible, something physical. So when the early Jews were hearing Jesus proclaiming that the kingdom is at hand, they're not thinking, oh great, an invisible bond between us is now at hand. Right. Neat. They're hearing, oh, there's going to be a king and a prime minister, an al bayit someone who holds the keys to the kingdom, right. and a Gebera, a queen mother. Yeah. Because all the kings in the ancient areas were usually polygamous. And so there's a bunch of wives. They can't be the queen. He only has one mom, though. So there's always a queen mother. There's uh-huh. always stewards over the kingdom. Jesus chooses 12. There's always a liturgy that accompanies the kingdom. Uh-huh. They're all hearing essentially what now we understand as the church. Right. Right. But this is a big deal. There's a there's a, a biblical scholar, um, Father Alfred Loazee. I don't know if you ever studied him. He's, he's long since deceased. But I believe he, at least it sure looks like toward the end of his life, he lost a lot of his faith and he had a very Mm. famous line. And it was because of this. So this isn't isn't a a side note. He said something like, Jesus promised us a kingdom and all we got was a church. Mm. This expectation that Jesus was kind of a liar, that he said these things are coming. But look what actually happened. It was just these you know, kind of bumbling apostles in this church that they started and all the things that kind of came thereafter. And so to lose the sacramental reality of well, the church the, church, is church, the kingdom, is, he just didn't make that connection. He just didn't make the connection or, or I actually think he did, but he was dissatisfied with his experience of the church. Mm. To be honest with you, JD, it was, it was one of the things that actually kind of brought me back to a full practice of my faith when i sort of wandered away was when I started to understand the Davidic kingdom
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how no matter how bad the sins are of the kings and how corrupt the sons of David become, the kingdom of God remains the kingdom of God. Yeah. It just happens to be placed in the hands of sinful men. Yeah, But that was comforting to me yeah. as we look, you know, the church, there are sinful men in the church. There always have been, there always will be. But the kingdom remains; it doesn't cease to be God's kingdom yeah. when sins happen. So it's an important point. It's an important point of faith, and the the book one and two of the Psalms actually are, are meant to bear that out. So it's really important for Psalm two. But here's here's how I want to link this. So again, Psalm uh, book number one and book number two are linked together. They're the Davidic Psalms. They're the Psalms in which we see the highest concentration of Psalms by or for or about David. Mm-hmm. But as you go through book two, they begin to taper off a little bit because they're going to kind of fade. And if you if you look at these together, so one of the things that – that because, again, there's 150 psalms. We can't possibly just read through and study all of them. That doesn't make sense. And so I've tried to approach this little study like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And I think the best way to do a jigsaw puzzle is to kind of get the, the border or the corner pieces. So I, I like to explore the, the border pieces of the books because we get some fruit there. So psalm number two, which is the first one of book one – and then Psalm number 72, which is the last Psalm of book two, mm-hmm. are actually parallels of each other. Oh. They close out the whole thing. And what Psalm seventy? So Psalm two, if you remember, was believed to be a Psalm written by David, at least traditionally, written by David on the occasion of the enthronement of his son, Solomon. That's right. Right? That's mm-hmm. what's believed. Psalm 72 is actually ascribed, believe it or not, to Solomon, and the belief is, again, the tradition suggests that it was a psalm that was ascribed to him being read at his son's ordination, which is a guy named Coronation. I'm Re- oh, sorry. What did I say? <laughs> ordination. Or, no. Coronation, sorry. So the coronation of his son, probably a guy named Rehoboam. Uh huh. Who became the next king. And so what you see in Psalm 72 is actually the same themes that we saw in Psalm 2: the authority of the king, the prosperity of the king, which is, you know, finally to be attributed back to God. So again, the Davidic kingdom belongs to God, and the Davidic kings are to be the stewards or the guardians, if you will, I suppose, of God's kingdom. So I actually want to kind of begin at the end today, and sure. I want to turn to Psalm 72. So Psalm 72 begins this way. And as I read this, imagine, so again, that the title that it's given here in the Bible is a Psalm of Solomon, but I want you to imagine Solomon, and I want to talk a little bit about Solomon in a minute, but Solomon speaking these words, praying these words in a certain sense over his son on the day of his coronation, a big, a big day. And it says, give the king thy justice, O God, and thy righteousness to the royal son. May he judge the people with righteousness and the poor with justice, right? And it goes on, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in thy righteousness. So it's really significant that here at the coronation, we're supposed to pray. So again, what it's leading to is all the people praying that God would give these things to the king. So in other words, it's God who makes the king who he is. Now, one of the things that you may have noticed in in the broader sense of scripture, especially in the prophets, by the way, you see this word combination that showed up here a lot. The words justice and righteousness which in this case is, is a prayer asking for these things to be given for the king, right? It says, may the, God give the king thy justice and thy righteousness. And those two word pairings, whenever you see word pairings in the Bible that appear over and over again, it, it merits some, some significance, right? We got to pay attention to it. Hebrew is... I, don't know, I guess you could say this either way. I, I sometimes say Hebrew is an impoverished language in the sense that maybe you could say it's richer, but in the sense that the Hebrew vocabulary is very small. It's much smaller than the English vocabulary and the Greek vocabulary. And so words can mean and must mean many, many different things, mm-hmm. right? So when a word that means kind of something significant is put together with another word, it it, it adds a level of meaning uh-huh. because the vocabulary is so small, right? So they, 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 the, the Hebrews, it's actually very beautiful. Like a big Rather,
0: German construction where they take like a root and then they put a, like 15 prefixes and suffix on it to mean a certain the thing. The Hebrews and,
1: don't do that. And again, it's it's a it's an evolution of linguistics that's kind of fascinating. They don't invent new words. They don't put new roots. They don't combine... They just put words. They together just create with create phrases. Each other. They create phrases. I see, which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah, Again, okay. it's Very poetic. Would
0: spirit and truth be one of those? The Lord saying that you know the day is coming when you'll worship in spirit and truth. Would that be an example?
1: Uh, Jesus says that in Greek. Oh well, it's, yeah. it's written in Greek. Never mind. And Greek doesn't do... It, Greek is similar, but it's not exactly the same. Okay. So perhaps... And there's probably something to it. <laughs> no, do you listeners love
0: when I ask a question where I'm wrong and then Scott I don't think is you're like, wrong. Uh, Scott's just, like, oh,
1: maybe I never thought about
0: it. But clearly he's like, no, that's obviously not... It's okay. a different so anywho, language. So yeah, right. Question. So that would be a fair...
1: No, but, but what you're doing is really right. And I I think, (laughs) no, I'm not, that's not meant to be condescending, but the, the impulse to say, oh, I I can think of other significant word pairings that we've heard before, because that's what the language is trying to do. It's trying to get us to note those things. Right. So I don't know. And I don't know, maybe there is a significance there. I'm just trying to affirm you. Thank you. That's really <laughs> nice. Okay, so let's get to it. So, justice and righteousness, when those words are put together, tend to refer to tend to refer to one very distinct quality: goodness
0: and mercy. Surely,
1: goodness and mercy will follow you all the days. Really, I'll knock it off now. Justice and righteousness, <laughs> goodness and mercy, actually might be the same terms as justice and righteousness in the Hebrew. Oh, really? And sometimes our trans—I'm not sure on that—but sometimes our English translations will, for the sake of variety, and, and no, I don't mean that in a in a in an, an unfaithful way, right, right. But just languages just don't always capture each other exactly. But sometimes translators will mix it up a little bit just to. Uh, Hebrew loves redundancies, mm. and Hebrew loves the kind of redundancies that almost sound annoying to translators and editors. Oh, and so some. So this is this is Greek, but we talked about the Gospel of Mark um, back in in a previous uh, season. Yeah, Mark uses the word immediately, uethos, forty-one all the time. times. Yes, yeah. and most English translations clean it up and take them all out and t- use another word, just Got because it. it's annoying. Got it. But it wants to be annoying. It yeah. wants to annoy you. And, or, or it doesn't want to annoy you, but it wants to get your attention. Or
0: convey something rhetorically. Or convey yeah. something.
1: So it actually might be the same term. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. But when you see justice and righteousness, it tends to, de- to refer to this distinct quality that the people are, again, supposed to pray that God gives the, to the Davidic king. And when those words appear together, it always means a specific care for the poor. And it's very it's very specific, which doesn't sound that you know monumental, but it, it is for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, in the ancient Near East, this isn't unique to Israel, right? In the ancient Near East, we read, you know, the, the writings of the Egyptians and the Syrians, Mesopotamians, the, um, all sorts of, of different people groups. When these ancient cultures looked back on their Kings, when they write the stories and the annals of their Kings, one of the things that they always noticed was whether so-and-so did justice and righteousness in the sight of the people Yeah, translated into Egyptian or, or, um, Uh, Sanskrit or, or whatever it is, right? So in other words, did he take care of the poor in that society? Wow. Because for the ancients, the efficacy of a king, his justice and his righteousness is first of all to be measured by how he treats the poorest, weakest, and most vulnerable members of society if he cared for the lowest, you can assume that he took care of the other people as well. Right. You can assume it's sort of a trickle-up system, right? Yeah. And this is a, a, this is obviously a principle in Catholic social teaching, right? To look at a society and see how the lowest of the low are doing is itself a commentary on that society. Yeah. And uh, the reason that that's significant – yeah, we should care for the poor. Oh, okay, we all know that. But the reason that's significant in the Psalms and the way in which they show up is that, remember, when the Psalms come to us, the way that they're compiled and given to us – It's post-exile, and what Israel is doing post-exile, having lost the temple, having lost their kingdom, having lost the priesthood for all intents and purposes, because there's nothing for them to do with no temple, having lost the liturgy, they are forced to look back and say, Man, how the heck did this happen? How did we get here, right? right? In the same way that the church should look back on crises or grave sins and say, "Man, how did we allow a culture like that to thrive? How did that happen?" Right. It's the right this, this is the cry of the psalmist. Yeah. And so that's why you it's not just, "Oh, it's nice to care for the poor." Yes, it is. But the psalms are very concerned about it because we're trying to figure out, "Man, things went really wrong, completely off the rails." To the degree that it seems like the promises God made to us have been taken away. How did that happen? So in this case, what the psalm is praying for in the case of presumably Rehoboam is for the gift of justice and righteousness for this king, right? And so you see, we read on, look at verse 4. says, may he, that is the king, defend the cause of the poor, of the people. May he give deliverance to the needy and crush the oppressor. Right? So notice that, that verse four kind of assumes that we know what justice and righteousness means. Yeah. It sort of assumes a knowledge on us for that, right? So this is the first part of the petition, right? Justice and righteousness for the king. And then in the next sort of set of verses, we see these prayers for the longevity of the king. It says, May he live while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass. (laughs) I love that imagery. And I don't know how much mowed grass there was in the ancient... East, right. That always sort yeah. of fascinates me. Right. But I, I mean, think of a, a nice spring rainstorm on freshly mowed grass. There's just something really, for me, I don't know about for you. For me, that's really visceral. Like that's a really, that's a really beautiful memory. Thinking back to being a little kid and you know, barefoot in a freshly mowed lawn. I don't know. There's something beautiful about that. And to think of the kingship that way, it's ironic because in the course of salvation history, we know what Rehoboam becomes. And so there's meant to be a pain in reading this. And we'll get to that in a second. Like showers that water the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon be no more. Right? Which is a pretty powerful set of, uh, set of prayers. Yeah. And then we go on from that. Verses 8 through 11 is a petition for the prosperity of his kingdom. And I, just, I have I'll, a question about verse 8. Um, yeah,
0: please. May he have dominion from sea to sea. Yeah. Is it all purely metaphorical or is there an actual geopolitical thing here where we mean may our kingdom expand from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf?
1: I wanna say it's purely metaphorical. Okay. But I'm I'm not I'm hesitating on that. I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna hand I'm not gonna stand too strongly on that. Okay. And maybe just, the people were hearing the 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 reason I say it's metaphorical is that I just can't imagine that a guy like Solomon would have been satisfied with his territory going okay. from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf. Okay. It's not that huge. I right. think he wanted more. Okay. Um, see to see the four corners of the earth, you know. So
0: all, all in a metaphorical. I mean, I certainly understand in a metaphorical sense.
1: I just wondered yeah. if it, in fact, you know, I'm not some sure. particular political reality. I'm not sure, but that's a, that's the question we always have to be asking, right? Where there's a literal sense and a spiritual sense. There's a there's a, a figurative sense sometimes, and a, and a more tangible sense. I'm I'm actually not sure. Maybe maybe there's more to it in the mind of the church and in the lens of Jesus, because ultimately the the key to unlocking all of this is looking back through Jesus, which um. Well, we'll get there in a minute, but I think what, what Jesus being read onto these Psalms shows us is that every prayer, every petition, every hope for the king and the kingdom is profoundly lacking. It's far too small, and you know, for Israel, the the what they wanted more than anything was to reacquire a piece of land that was a hundred miles by fifty miles, about the size of Delaware, right? right? Which I mm-hmm. always forget Delaware even exists. But that there, and again, what what Jesus is going to show is no, no, you're thinking far. T- that's not merely what the kingdom is. It's from sea to sea. It's from the yeah. river to the the ends of the earth. So whatever they meant by it, there is obviously a, a meaning that's deeper, right? Yeah. But there's also this promise. Um, It also embeds in it a promise of universal dominion, which is precisely what is prayed for um, throughout the rest of Psalm 72, right? So may you have dominion from sea to sea the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him. His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. So think about this for a second. Put this in the mouth and the lips of Solomon, who I don't know if you remember the story of Solomon. Solomon, we remember uh, for his wisdom, right? Give, give wisdom. That's what he prayed for when he was presented with any prayer he could he could dream of. He prayed for wisdom. The wisdom of Solomon. We're like, oh, that's cool. What a holy man. But as you follow the course of Solomon's life, Solomon becomes one of the worst kings in Israel mm-hmm. and really one of the worst kings because the consequence of his sin will be one of the most important um, that Solomon's sin that actually leads to the ripping apart, the schizo in Greek, the r- ripping apart of the kingdom of God, the sacramental reality of God's sovereignty on the world. The division
0: f- from a southern kingdom into and a northern kingdom.
1: Exactly right, which is described by the prophets as a ripping, yeah. not just like, oh, it's a it's a divide, you know, we'll go this way, you guys go this way, an amicable beast. No, it's, it's a schizoing. It's a ripping sure. apart, a rendering, a, a shredding of the kingdom. That's well, how imagine how, describes. I mean, just
0: if you think about how, even psychologically and spiritually disruptive the American Civil War was yeah. for Americans, and oh, that's yeah. not even there's not even the same sort of unicity of theological vision and purpose for Americans as there. well, maybe there's close but I mean that's, that's debatable, <laughs> but I think. mean you know the, not not to the same degree I think that would have been true for Israel. so perhaps if you take that and sort
1: of even magnify it or amplify it, it's a good analogy hmm. It's a really good analogy. I mean even the time frame is 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 similar there, there's a lot of analogy it's actually the analogy I usually use in class on this. I call it the Israelite Civil War. Because the analogies kind of work but but the other thing about Sol- so what what is Solomon's sin fundamentally what does he do so way back in the book of deuteronomy um Deuteronomy is a time before there were kings in Israel. Deuteronomy was being given to Israel during the time of the Exodus, when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, having received the Ten Commandments, having fallen to the sin of worshiping a golden calf and saying, that's the one who got us out of Egypt. That's the one who parted the Red Sea for us. You know, this this grave apostasy, because they saw Moses go up on a mountain. They saw the mountain shrouded in lightning and thunder and fire, and they said, well, he's toast. We should move on to something else or go back to some other version of a God to put our trust in. Um, It's in this time that the book of Deuteronomy shows up. And the book of Deuteronomy is fundamentally saying, okay, Israel, you have sinned, but I'm not leaving you. Remember, there's this great, we're going to come back to this next week. There's this great scene where God says to Moses, the people have gone completely off the rails and I'm out. And he trains Moses in, in a certain sense to be an intercessor for the people, to put himself on the line for – God wasn't, I don't think, going to jet. But he wants Moses to, to learn how to intercede for a sinful people. Right. Anyway, all this is the context into which Deuteronomy shows up. And Deuteronomy tries to say, okay, Israel, I know your shortcomings. I know what you could be and I know what you've, you've been – been being. <laughs> and as you go forward toward the promised land, which they have not acquired, they don't have the temple yet. They don't have the promised land. They don't have the kingdom. They don't have any of this. But Deuteronomy looks ahead and anticipates what Israel would be like when they do. Right. And one of the things that Deuteronomy says, it's in chapter 17, it lays out rules for the eventual time, when you, when you eventually have a king. So I don't know if you're how familiar people are with the story of salvation history. There's a moment in salvation history where the people demand that a guy named Samuel, who's a judge, give them a king. Right. Like, we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. Right. And I think it's easy, and, and they get a really cruddy king named Saul, and he's king for all the wrong reasons, and he goes off the rails. But the temptation is to think God didn't want them to have a king because God alone is the king. Right. And God's kingship and God's kingdom, a kingness, <laughs> should be sufficient. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, no, God always wanted them to have a king. God's intent was always to have a visible, concrete manifestation of this. God loves to work through the material. God loves to work through concrete realities to show us into something greater. So he says, when you have a king someday, because God wanted them to, they just were asking for it in the wrong ways and at the wrong time. It's interesting how how frequently
0: this sort of thing manifests itself, right? So that that division... Effectively, that division between those who think God wants there to be an earthly hierarchy and those who don't is at the root of, uh, you know, the Christian schisms of the West and Protestantism. But also there's also no, but there's also no way to think about that without thinking about um, the splits between Shia and Sunni Islam, which have a similar sort of what does God want for Islam in the world?
1: It's a human struggle. Yeah. It's a very human struggle. We'll be right back.
3: Hi everyone. My name is Kate Oliveira, and I produce this show Sunday school. There is so much to love about this podcast. Scott offers such refreshing insights about Scripture. A lot of his insights have helped me feel more comfortable with the Bible, and I hope they've helped you too. If you enjoy listening to Sunday School as much as I do, I'd like to ask you to please consider becoming a paying subscriber to The Pillar. The support of paying subscribers makes projects like Sunday School possible. We have several subscription plans available, including one that's only $5 a month. If you're already a paying subscriber, you're awesome. And maybe you could consider gifting a subscription to someone else. For more information, visit pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. That's pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. Thanks, guys.
0: We are back from our break, and to kick things off for the second half of this episode of our Psalter season of Sunday School, here's Ed Condon with Psalm.
1: Scott, what's he going to read? We're going to do Psalm 72. Here's Ed Condon with Psalm 72.
2: Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. till the moon be no more may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust may the kings of tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute may the kings of sheba and seba bring gifts may all kings fall down before him all nations serve him for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities, like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wonderful things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and Amen.
0: All right, we're back, Scott. Let's get back to it. So we were just talking about the way in which the kingdom is real, that God desired for
1: Israel a real and true kingdom, an earthly kingdom. Yeah. Yeah, we think we were talking specifically about the attributes of the king. So the the three big things, and I think this is the kind of takeaway that Deuteronomy 17 says about the king who is yet to come— Is that basically whenever you see the king doing three things, you should look out because that's not good. And I always always think of it as the three Ws. Whenever the king begins to acquire too many wives, too much wealth, and too much weaponry, that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. right? And if you read the story, I I believe it's in 1 Kings. Solomon's story, although he starts off with this great wisdom, and actually it, it, it doesn't even say give me a great mind. It actually asks, he asks for his heart to be turned back to God. So, it, there's, so there's so much hope with Solomon. Every other son of David kind of goes off the rails in all their own ways. Yeah. Solomon seems to be the glimmer of hope in the children of David, and, and he falls off in a pretty big way. And you, you can watch systematically him acquiring hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines, most of which, by the way, as a tiny side note, I don't think that the kings of Israel acquired tons of wives just because of – merely out of sexual immorality. I'm sure there was plenty of that. But in the ancient world, you acquired wives because of political alliances, and he wanted to ally himself with other kingdoms and other governors and other political forces to garner his power. That's where a lot of the – I'm sure there was probably sexual immorality too, but he probably didn't even know most of the wives. It was just for political alliances. So it's about power because he's not trusting his power coming from God. He just wants it But for those himself. marriages would n- – those – so-called marriages would necessarily be consummated. So there was an instance, I presume, of sexual immorality pertaining to them. Yes. I don't know. Oh, interesting. I, re- I mean, we're talking about hundreds of wives, oh. which honestly, le- just on a Far be it from me, Scott, to ask questions about <laughs> Well, you're the matters. candidate. I mean, this you're the, is the a family, family show. show. You're like, well, wait a second. Well, hold on. Is this legally binding? I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I it, the ancient world didn't necessarily rely on... Oh, the same criteria in the same way. I mean, he's he making a covenant probably less with the woman and more with her father, King so-and-so or emperor, whatever. Entering the house. in so I don't know. A sense of, I mean, Exactly. Okay. And mm-hmm. knowing that you will have my back. If I end up getting attacked, you are going to fight for me and I'm going to have your money and your, your military behind me. That yeah. That's what he's doing. Again, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs, but again, it's more than just, we, we, we can't, uh, under read it as just a sexual problem. Uh-huh. There's a, he, he's, yeah, there's a pride and there's a power. So. Too many wives, that's a problem on lots of levels. Too much wealth. We read that he had to build storehouses just for his gold because mm-hmm. he had so much of it and he so overtaxed the people and, you know, acquired and gathered to himself all these riches. So that was problematic. And then the weaponry, weaponry was not – it actually says war horses. The idea is not that Israel had to be a pacifist nation. It, they could certainly defend themselves. They're, they're a nation like anyone else. But the idea was they weren't supposed to be the kind of nation that conquers other nations. No right? No empire. They're not supposed to be imperial in the political sense. Right. Now, what's tricky about—and this is actually where I wanted to go in a little bit—what's tricky about this line about dominion that you pointed out? It does suggest something imperial, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. There is supposed to be a dominion of the kingdom. We're praying for the king to have dominion from sea to sea. Well, right. how can you do that without war horses, right? That's right. what you do. Yeah. But this goes back one of the one of the few things that Psalm seventy-two has that Psalm two doesn't have is this subtle little reference back to the promises of Abraham. And it actually says this in verse 17. It talks about, May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, and men, may men bless themselves by him, and all nations call him blessed. Which is a reference back to the promises given to Abraham in, in Genesis 12, when God says, Abraham, I want to bl- I want to give you descendants. Remember, Abraham right. struggled with infertility. I want to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through them you will have land. You will have a great name, which means a kingdom, a dynasty. And through you, all generations will be blessed, right? Um, which come true to different degrees in the Old Testament. But this is actually rooting this king in a way that Psalm 2 doesn't do it all the way back to the promises of, of Genesis. But the thing is, how do, you, how do you have dominion on the earth without warfare, well, this is where the church becomes the interpretive key to understanding what all of this was meant to be. Solomon is acquiring all these, all this wealth and these wives and these alliances and weaponry because he wants to be an empire. He in wants a literal to con- sense. In the, Sol- literal the literal sense. sense in she the, she the political shines, sense, right, say, yeah. or in the but military sense. But I mean, a literal sense, sense of this is a Psalm, yeah. she's shining the shining sea imperial kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And then it, it it feels almost weird to pray Psalm 72. Am I really praying for Solomon to <laughs> conquer more nations? And this right. is where, again, the lens of Christ is the only thing that really makes the Psalms sensible, because we're praying for something, at least in the literal sense, that we don't we don't necessarily want. That wasn't good for Solomon, and it wasn't for, good for the kingdom. But now we see in the light of the church, oh, that's what it means to have dominion over the earth. That's what it means for all nations to bless themselves. That's what it means, for Pete's sake, for every king to fall down before okay, him and so help serve me him. with verse
0: 9, 72 verse 9. May desert tribes bow yes. before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Like, I mean... Uh, there's a kind of vindictiveness there. Yes. like So how maybe do the fathers of the church interpret that in a spiritual sense or um, other than sort of like let's own the
1: the pagans, so to speak, <laughs> right? right? Um, this is something that actually C.S. Lewis talks about in his reflections on the Psalms. And, you know, he's not a Catholic, but he has some, some fascinating insights, which, which one of the things that the Old Testament in a certain sense in general, but the Psalms in particular are not afraid of – And I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. Let me caveat it by saying all of Scripture is inspired by God and without error. That is what the church
0: teaches. But this comes up a lot, right? May our enemies be vanquished in various colorful ways. This is a Psalter
1: theme. The inerrancy of Scripture is not afraid of grappling with imperfect views of God, imperfect understandings of... Of what God wants from us. Because imperfect God reveals himself emotions. over time. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is an imperfect. C.S. Lewis makes a big deal about this in his book. There's a whole chapter about the vengeance Psalms and how, like, they're almost laughable with some of the. And this is one of the least. Well, of anyone them. who. I mean, anyone
0: who, who. Even encountering the incarnation right. would encounter the incarnation with an imperfect view of
1: God because apart from Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so there's the sense that the Psalms are okay because God reveals Himself slowly with the fact that our emotions aren't perfect here. And sometimes and, and the scriptures are okay with us expressing things that are not fully um sanctified emotions. Our emotions sometimes get out of whack. And so it doesn't when we mean... read smiting psalms, yeah. like may my enemies be smited in various ways.
0: Or God, God will smite my enemies yeah, in various yeah. ways. Well, we're I praying mean, that
1: God will sp- right. Sp- right. Yeah, smite, exactly. our enemies.
0: So, how is that? I mean, what? How do people then interpret that in a uh, in light of in light of the incarnation? I suppose.
1: Well, okay, two things. How we. Because I'm more concerned, I'm not more concerned, but my immediate concern is how do we deal with it in terms of Scripture being without error? Right. Because that seems like an error in ju- That seems like the wrong thing to wish for. Okay. But it's without error because people really are praying for that. Oh, sure. It's I mean, real, I think yeah. it doesn't strike me as a problem that... Oh, good. I mean, because I pray for things
0: that I oughtn't pray for all yeah. the time, right? Yeah. And it Scripture expresses that. It seems very human that I... Yep. If yep. I'm yep. if this is a piece of poetry right. expressing a person's sentiment, yep. it seems very human that I'm constantly asking the Lord to smite my enemies. I But I rec- I'm also sort of confessing that, yes. right?
1: Yeah. Well, so C.S. Lewis gives – I keep going to him. He gives this uh, analogy about an experience he had and take this for whatever you will. And I I was very, very moved by this because this is important. And this was during World War II and I believe – or maybe just before it. And he was serving in the British military and he was on a train, he said. uh, And he was overhearing a conversation with these other two soldiers, these couple soldiers. And they were reading about this guy named Adolf Hitler in Germany. And they were like, you know, there's no way this is actually happening. This can't possibly – what they're saying that this Hitler guy is doing in, in Germany, there's no way this could actually be true. And I'm sure that the British government just just trumped up these things and kind of made it sound like something it's not so that they can script us into service. Mm-hmm. And and then they, it was almost dismissive. And he said, if you think about what what he just heard – and I'm paraphrasing all this – they almost didn't care. They're like, ah, you know, I don't buy it. And the British government, they just want us to serve and – He's like these. If what they were saying was true, that the British government had made up stories about genocide as a way of getting you to give your lives and probably losing them and dying in fighting for a lie that we made up, they should be out of their minds, angry. They sure. should want to rip people from power. I mean, there should be such rage at that. But he said, that, and that's what the psalms are kind of. It's almost better. There's there's more of a recognition of what is true to have overblown emotions toward an injustice or a wrong or an evil in the world than the kind of complacency that we he experienced way back then, and I think we see all the time. Like, yeah, no, these things are super duper evil, but you know what? What are you going to do? do? Right. He said that that's a far worse uh, reaction. This isn't necessarily right. This isn't the the holy response, but it's better than. The complacency—it's better than nothing. So, it was a fascinating reflection for me of you know because God can work with that. If there's these strong emotions, God can baptize those. God can refine those things. But if there's nothing, if we don't even care, uh-huh. what does God do? So Israel, at least, even if they're wrongheaded in their rage, at least they're feeling a desire for what is true Or they want things. justice. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was his reflection on how to how to reconcile these things. But then in Jesus, again, if we see it from the lens of Jesus. His enemies do lick the dust. Who's his enemy? The evil one who even in the garden is brought down into the dust. He loses his legs in the story, right? So we can t- kiss the dust literally. So if we understand our enemies to be other human nations or other, you know, flesh and blood kings, this is problematic. But if we understand our enemy fundamentally to be the evil one, then yeah, this is right. And that's actually what Jesus does. And thus the kings of the earth do bow down before Jesus as king. Solomon wanted something else, and Solomon was inadvertently speaking a truer truth than he had any idea. Well, that's that he a was common. Saying. I mean, help me, because I mean, you talked about this: is
0: how does this impact the inerrancy of Scripture? But and it, it seems to me doesn't. You, you, you but see that? It, it seems to me often that one might say that the that the authors of sacred scripture or the compilers of sacred scripture wrote better than they knew in a certain way, right? Sometimes, um, you know, that, sometimes. that the literal sense. Is baptized and sanctified in a way that far exceeds sort of the vision of the of the yes. literal author of a particular passage of scripture. Yes. to have a much deeper, profound meaning in in, in light of Christ. Right? Is that a fair?
1: It absolutely is. And in this case, again, if if this really is Solomon, he probably has an evil intent in mind, and yeah. even his evil intended words are baptized. <laughs> so when I pray to...
0: Psalm seventy-two or mm-hmm. other smiting psalms, um, or conquering psalms or whatever, I mean, I can pray it both as the um it seems to me that it would be reasonable for me to pray it as, um, God, I ha- I am this... I have this... This is genuine... This genuinely expresses my own sort of yeah. view of the world or my own sort of sentiments in the world and redeem me and heal yeah. me and purify me. Mm. Um Or I can pray it with a spiritual sense in mind of, like, God, vanquish the enemy who is the evil one. Right. Right? I mean, is that... Are both of those valid?
1: Yeah. And I... I... Yes, and I I think the wonder of the Psalms is that they don't give us a commentary. They don't come to—and there's plenty of commentaries on the Psalms—but they don't come to us with commentary. They simply present the emotions, they express what they express, and the Psalms sort of leave it to us to unpack them, which is why the Psalms are not supposed to be a one-and-done thing. You're not supposed to read Psalm 72, think whatever you think, and then move on. Or a catechetical text. They're an account—in a certain way, an account of discipleship, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, and and they're a, a they're a wrestling through emotions, right. and sometimes those emotions are wrongheaded. Yeah, but they still need to be wrestled wrestled through. So prayer looks a little bit different. We don't need to petition God necessarily for these things, but we should pray through the Psalms, saying, "Man, where are my intents, and how does God actually in the end redeem this? And even if I pray them wrongly, knowing God can actually still use that to bring me to whatever is true." But I love that the Old Testament, the Psalms in particular, are not afraid of emotions that are too erring on one side or the other. Yeah. But it's it's something that I rest, I struggle with with the Psalms. I've always struggled with the Psalms because. Some psalms should make you really uncomfortable, mm. like bashing the the babies of the Babylonians against oh, the rocks, geez, which it prays for right. in the psalms. What do you do with that? Again, C.S. Lewis says this. Is actually, this is this is where then there is there is probably wrongheaded human emotion that's being conveyed because it's true and people really did feel that. But then we can actually make – we can recognize a spiritual sense where there's all sorts of little, little things inside of me that should be dashed against the rocks, things that lead me, things that want to overtake me, things that tempt me, things that make me into the person I'm not supposed to be on a spiritual sense that should be. Dashed against the rocks, and in the a key is sense. not to
0: sanitize it in such a way that we think that yes. the the compilers of the Psalms definitely that's had the not spiritual what they meant. right. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. But rather, but rather, it seems to me two things: one, yeah. wow, it's amazing how in God's providence this takes on a different meaning, and that's exactly two, right. wow, I, in recognizing the the candor yeah. of of what the psalmist is saying here, must also uh, recognize like the folly of. A sort of pious veil over my own depravity. Far better for me to pray to God in my if, in, in reality yeah. than to sort of perdure in emotion in emotions or sentiments like that and not present them to God, but only to present God's sort of pseudo pieties that are not real or whatever.
1: And if the psalms are to be taken seriously, that's what we have to reckon with. Again, you can kind of read them and and sort of half think about them, but if they're actually reflected on, the only proper response is to how to wrestle through that. Because they are yeah. uncomfortable, so yeah, I, th- I think you 're hundred percent right,
0: so there 's a sense i mean it might be easier to think we were talking before about the waters coming up to my neck. It yeah. might be easier to think about the psalms of lament of spiritual it desolation, yep. but the smiting psalms then I have to ask myself about my own sort of smiting sentiments,
1: and that 's what they're asking us to do right that that's and again they 're doing multiple things at the same time they 're asking me to think about my smiting sentiments, which is a lot of alliteration in this podcast <laughs> um, but they're also they're also forcing. There's lots of things to reflect and pray through, one of which is, again, we ended up in exile. We lost. So if the kingdom—here's the thing we have to—and we're we're close to the end of our time. If we're to understand what book three is doing— We're in book two
0: now, yes? I know. But if
1: we're we're to understand what book three will do next week when we look at it, we have to feel the weight of the reality, the sacramental concrete reality of God's sovereignty in the kingdom. Because book three will try to wrestle through its loss— and none of Psalm 3 can actually make sense unless you experience and understand the reality and the importance of it for books 1 and book 2, right? In the sense that the, the, the Davidic king is supposed to be, for his people, what God is for Israel. And if this sacramental reality has been ripped out of our hands, has been shattered and burned to the ground, which the temple was, the kingdom was, the palaces was, the king was cut down on the plains of Jericho what does that ultimately mean for God's relationship to us? Because we know he wanted a king. He said that. He gave us a kingdom. He gave us a temple. He tabernacled among us. And if we've lost all of that, what does that mean? Which is the reflection that... That's this, what
0: we'll grapple with in book three. In book three. And so sum up for me... But we can't me,
1: understand that unless we understand its importance in book two. And so
0: sum up for me. So the, so the central theme of book two is really an assertion of this the, of God's presence and sovereignty in the kingdom of Israel.
1: It's an assertion of God's presence and sovereignty in Israel, but but not cleanly so. And I want to end in a particular way, but what it's trying to do on a, on a big picture, again, think of how book one and two, and again, book one and book two can be seen together, ought to be seen together. Book two was this psalm of coronation of David, and the kingdom is named after him. It is the the Messiah will come psalm from two. his line. What did I say? A book, but I just want to check. Psalm two. Psalm sorry, two. Psalm is just, two. Yeah, okay. And again, it's directly paralleled with Psalm 72, but if you know your history and you know who Solomon was and who Rehoboam was, that is your key to show that the inverse has happened. What we've been praying for in Psalm 2, what we prayed for in Psalm 72, oh, the the historical reality was the opposite of this. So, and, and actually, even in fact, look Help at Help me with
0: that one more time.
1: If we know who, who Solomon is praying this Psalm over- His son. His son. Mm-hmm. His son, well, Solomon ultimately, and then through the hands of his son, they are the cause of the kingdom's loss.
0: So we pray in, in Psalm 2 at this great celebration of God's sovereignty and the unity and the yep. glory of the kingdom of Israel. Now, and then we pray the Psalm same s- thing. 72, we pray the same thing, but we pray it in this but moment.
1: We pray it ironically. Okay. We don't pray it ironically, but, but we pray, pray it, it knowing that... I mean, I mean think of... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Think of... This is a weird analogy, and bear with me, and maybe it's an inappropriate one think of the thinking back to the ordination of a priest or a bishop who is later found to have done atrocious things to Ooh, children wow. it's an analogy i know but for the mind of israel it's that kind of a thing or well maybe... what a beautiful ordination what beautiful prayers what a beautiful liturgy but we know what happened in the life of that person and the damage they caused that's what if you know the story. And so Psalm if you're later on, if you're
0: if you're later on, so the, all of this yes. is the people singing these psalms are later in on when they're compiled, yeah, they're exactly. thinking back in its compilation, are thinking back to history. So yeah. they think about the David Psalms as well, this was a glorious time. And then when they think about oh, this was what was prayed. This beautiful prayer was prayed over Solomon yes. as we marched to our destruction. Yes.
1: And it's like it forces you to watch the video of that liturgy when that bishop was ordained, or whatever. Mm-hmm. We got to read that. We have to read it. We have to we're listen. to We're going through words. this
0: painful thing. Yeah, we're watching. Yeah, we're, we're wa- like, um, you know how um all these, uh, you know how at the first battle of Bull Run, I don't know, I'm in a Civil War theme today, but you know how all these I picnickers know. went out for the first battle of Bull Run because they didn't really understand what was going to happen. Oh no! And so yeah, there are I these, don't know. This no this there are right. these historic photographs and newspaper accounts. There was to you know basically there, and historians will. I'm just saying this extemporaneously historians will correct me, but for various reasons, there was not a sense of what the horrors of war would be. And so there were effectively like spectators who thought that they would sort of watch something very different at the first Battle of Bull Run and then were horrified by the depravity of war, but it, it would wow. sort of be, it seems to me that for for Israelites in a later time, thinking about this psalm parade is like sort of watching those guys go out to watch the battle with no idea of what's wow. about to happen. Or if we were to watch a video, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. Yeah. And then I'm sorry to be think, trying to think of so many analogies. But I, maybe this is we like, have to if it, you're yeah. watching a video of people going to work on September 11th who don't know what's about to happen, and you know what's about to happen. Yeah. And they're just like, hey, we're going to work. We work in this awesome building called the World Trade Center. And we're like, right. don't go into the building for God's sake. Um. But it's too late. And so we're just, grappling with that and 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 here it's like this guy's becoming king at the same time
1: as this is terrible stuff. But again, you're right, 100% right. I am no <laughs> I'm no right. no wait wait wait. I agree with you. Um the only difference is ideally, I I think and I hope it's being done not just to man, there's nothing we can do. Right. But to say could this have been stopped? could this have been different? how did this how did this happen? we need to ah, go watch the video. Right. we need to go watch this to see if we can pick out any inklings of of a sign or a clue mm-hmm. that not only could have could have turned it the other way, but to show us how not to do this in the future mm-hmm. and how we can somehow remedy what went wrong. cuz remember, this is all this is not happening. they're not being given the canon of the psalms in the light of Jesus. Right. They're being given pre-Jesus. So none of this has been worked out. They're still in the rubble. And they're saying, how did we get to the rubble? And how do we get out of the rubble?
0: And so the now we're we walking do... through, as we be, end Psalm 2, we're walking into the start of the rubble. As Psalm 72. This, 72 yep. rather. We're doing this forensic that's analysis right.
1: of our history and we're walking. This is, I, I don't know why I gave right. all those analysis. No, I think that's right. We're doing right. this forensic analysis of our history and we're walking into the rubble bin. I think that's right. And look at look at how Psalm 72 ends. Do you have your Bible in front of you? Yeah. Wait. Yeah, Psalm 72 verse... Uh, uh, Twenty, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Bum, bum, <laughs> right, exactly.
0: Yeah. Again, you
1: can just kind of read it really, but that's an ominous note, yeah. and that I, I have to imagine is added later by a by an editor, right? Yeah. Who puts that in? So it ends there. That's the note. Now, now here's the last thing I want to say, and then we'll kind of wrap it up for the day. Um, we started at the end, and now I want to go back to the beginning of this book because what you said before is. This is, again, something that's worth wrestling with and struggling through with the Psalms is that it's not a clean storytelling. It's not a saying, okay, here's where we are. Now let's go back and just recount the whole thing. Um, The Psalms of David in Book 1 and 2, the Psalms of the greatness of the kingdom, the sacramental reality being lived out or tried to be lived out. It's not clean, and there's dark psalms in there too. There's hopeful psalms in book three, for Pete's sake, and it vacillates back and forth. And so the way that, as we've kind of come through, so book one has the the greatest concentration of psalms of David, tons of them. But then the way that book two begins, listen to this, So I'm in verse, I'm in uh, Psalm forty-two. It says this, and this is a familiar psalm to some of us. As a heart or a deer, as a as a heart longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for Thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me continually, "Where is your God?" Now, that's believed to have been written uh, by the sons of Korah at some point, which were a Levitical choir that come out of the time of Exodus. But that's definitely an exilic psalm. I don't know if it was written in the time of exile or they pulled it because they're like, this is how we feel. The compilers who are talking about how great the kingdom is and isn't it wonderful are like the deer looking for running waters, saying, my soul is longing for you. Where are you? And all these people are saying to me continually, where's your God? Why? Because he's gone. The temple has been deceased. The spirit, um, the uh, the Shekinah has gone away from us. So it begins with an exile psalm. And then it goes on. The next one, Psalm 43, vindicate me, O God, defend my cause against an ungodly people and deceitful and unjust men. Deliver me for thou art the God in whom I take refuge. Why have thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Now, again, that could have been written by David, perhaps while he was running from Saul. But the final editors put it here because that's their experience. So it's not a clean storytelling. It's a going back and saying, this is what happened. This is how our story took place. But never forget where we are now because we're never to lose sight of why we're telling the story, why we're watching those videos, why we're going back. Because it's not enough for the Israelites to whitewash history and say, well, let's just forget it ever happened. It's also not enough to just uh, talk about the, the heyday. Oh, wasn't it so great in these days when everything looked like this and kind of go back and, and uh, you know, with rose-colored glasses. It's this constant tension. Psalms, Psalm book two especially, is meant to keep you in tension of this is what the kingdom is and this was its uh, reality and how God worked through it. But this is where we are now and we have to hold it holds that intention at constant. And then when we get to book 3 now that the psalms of david are ended, it's going to wrestle through anger and mourning and grief and frustration and try to deal with what those things mean in our lives.
0: Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media, and Ed and JD production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, joined by our Sunday School teacher himself, Dr. Scott Powell. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week.